is a battle going on today for the heart and soul of America, and the right side must win. It's time for America Can We Talk with Debbie George Addis. On America Can We Talk, we talk truth about America and why it matters to you. America Can We Talk starts now. And good evening and welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show in tonight's First Five. First, I want to say happy Labor Day weekend. I hope you're actually enjoying a little bit of family time, a little bit of relaxation. I'm going to talk in the next segment about great news for people who love freedom on this Labor Day weekend because the holiday was actually started to celebrate socialism and labor unions. However, freedom is bursting out all over the place. Can't wait to tell you uh, next segment. But I'm going to start tonight by talking about something that's happened in California. This is my last show I'm doing from California. We've been out here for uh, uh, four weeks on, on a working trip, and I'm doing the uh, show again from the studio here in Oxnard, California. Many, many thanks to both Greg Lindemood in the Irving Station in Texas and Kevin Campbell here at the Oxnard Station, making it possible for me to do my show from California. So you may have read that in California, the head, the chair of the Democrat Party, the state of California, um, named Eric Bauman, he issued on Twitter, he issued a, a demand for a boycott for his uh, for all the California Democrats of a really popular hamburger chain named In-N-Out Burger. Now, I'll tell you about In-N-Out Burger in just a second. But first, I want to tell you why the guy did this. So there's some uh, alleged, you know, D.C.-based journalist, and I say alleged journalist. He spends his time culling through donation records, and he discovered that In-N-Out Burger, a uber-popular hamburger chain here in California and actually in Texas and many other places, had, of all unspeakable things, donated money to the Republican Party. I mean, that was like an outrage. So he, pu- he puts this out on Twitter. You know, who knew that this, this in and out burger donated to the GOP? So Eric Bauman, the Democrat, uh, California Democrat Party chair, called for a boycott. He put his tweet out late Wednesday night. Well, the really hilarious thing is, before I really get to the serious point about this, really hilarious thing is that there have been pictures all over Twitter, all over Facebook, all over social media. in and out is just inundated with customers. And what's so great about the pictures of people in line, we're talking out the door, down the street, around the parking lot, people going to In-N-Out Burger as a response or retaliation to this idiotic call for a boycott. And the great thing about these pictures is it is people of every race, ethnicity, national origin, age, both genders. I mean, it's kind of everybody. It's people in line saying, what are you kidding me? I love In-N-Out Burger. So I will tell you as a smallest side on In-N-Out Burger that we, my husband and I, lived in California many years, and that was our, our kids' favorite hamburger place. So we moved away. We moved a couple of times. And whenever we'd come out to California to visit, because my husband's family is all out here, um, we would land at the airport with the three kids, pick up the rental car, go to In-N-Out Burger and get in and out burgers, and then go on our way to visit the family. I mean, very, they're just a unique taste. They are now in Texas and many other places. But on a very serious note about this call to boycott, you know, this is something the left is doing more and more. And it is a totalitarian effort to say to the rest of America, to say to everyone, you aren't allowed to do anything that we don't permit. You aren't allowed to think anything that we don't like. So, I mean, it wasn't like, for example, that they made a donation to a really controversial thing, which 
if you think it's controversial or not, you may recall a few years ago, Brandon Ike, who used to be the CEO of Mozilla, the creators of Firefox, it was uncovered by some sleuth that he, Brandon Ike, or Ike, I can't remember his name, had donated a small amount or some amount of money to Proposition 8, which was a California proposition supporting traditional marriage. He was driven out of his own company for making a donation in support of traditional marriage. More recently, Brad Anderson, you may remember that story. There was a guy who had made a donation in the 2016 election cycle to some group that was going to run ads he thought pro-Israel, and the ads were uh, raising alarm, raising the alarm ball about radical Islam in America. They weren't the most best well, they weren't the best um, done ads ever, but that's what they ran. And so he was driven. This is a former CEO of Best Buy. He was driven off of the boards of General Mills, the Mayo Clinic, Minnesota NPR, and even he was still on the Best Buy board. And so driven off of that for making a donation to a group the left does not approve of. And I'm going to tell you why I think this is so serious and just a a real statement about where left-wing America lives in their heads. They believe, first of all, This guy, the head of the California Democrat Party, he believes they have so vilified the GOP, so equated the Republican Party and every member in it and every person who's part of it as a racist, sexist, xenophobic, hateful, Islamophobic, all the words they throw out, that simply a donation to that party would be enough to inspire California Democrats to boycott something because they donated to a party. Second is... This is symbolic, symptomatic of the American left saying, we don't discuss discuss issues. We don't agree with the American political conversation. We don't participate in the conversation on all the many issues. Our answer is, shut up, you can't talk. That is the message of the American left. And I really am grateful to see that so many people are eating an In-N-Out burger, which my husband and I are going to do tonight after the show. This is Debbie George S. It's America Coming Talk. If you're on Facebook Live, come back in four minutes. Coming right up after this, Labor Day news you'll love. America faces unprecedented threats to our national security. The Center for Security Policy, based in Washington, D.C., is a national leader focused on the organization, management, and direction of public policy coalitions to promote U.S. national security. The Center is a special forces in the war of ideas dedicated to identifying opportunities and challenges likely to affect American security and acting promptly to ensure that they are the subject of focused national examination and effective action. The Center enlists support from executive branch officials, key legislators, and other public policy organizations and brings these teams together to develop and shape policies that will keep America safe. Check out centerforsecuritypolicy.org for the latest news and developments brought to you by America's leading security experts. Becoming and remaining informed is one of the best ways every citizen can be a part of the mission to keep America safe. That's centerforsecuritypolicy.org. Do you dream of a better world? One where poverty and hunger are a thing of the past? What if you could make a real difference in the lives of those most in need? The solution to poverty is not handouts, but hope. The freedom and opportunity to use one's talents and resources for good. At Five Talents, we empower the poor to start their own small businesses. Five Talents works in some of the most difficult places in the world. 
With $85, you can help a new entrepreneur escape from poverty and build a sustainable business that helps her whole family. Can you think of anywhere else your gift can work that effectively? When you walk with five talents, you bring opportunity to those most in need. Join us in demonstrating the greatness of American generosity. Visit 5talents.org today to learn about the impact you can make. That's 5talents.org. F-I-V-E talents.org. Our military and veterans have served all of us, defending our nation whenever and wherever duty calls. But at home, when their families need support, they know they can turn to Operation Homefront for help. Operation Homefront provides military families with critical financial assistance, transitional and permanent housing, and family support programs throughout the year to help prevent their short-term needs from turning into long-term struggles. When you support Operation Homefront, your donation will make a real difference because 92 percent of their expenditures go directly towards programs that our military families need most. Each year, Operation Homefront serves thousands of military families, families in your community, helping wounded veterans transition to civilian life, helping military families pay overdue bills when their loved ones deploy overseas, and helping them through their short-term struggles. Make a difference today and help serve America's military families. Visit OperationHomefront.org. That's OperationHomefront.org. Do you know that one in nearly five United States residents lives in an immigrant household? That we take in more than one million new legal immigrants every year? Studying the impact of federal immigration program is the mission of the Center for Immigration Studies, the nation's only think tank looking at the broad national effect of immigration policy. Whether it's on crime, welfare, national security, or the job market, CIS digs out information about immigration from government sources, translates it into English, and makes it available to the public, the news media, and policymakers in Washington. Check out its work at CIS.org. CIS makes the case for better enforcement against illegal immigration and lower levels of legal immigration in the future. Most other special interest groups pursue the opposite. The only thing standing between them and open borders is an informed public. Get informed and stay informed by visiting CIS.org. That's CIS.org. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. I'm so happy you've tuned in tonight and every week, every Sunday night at 6 to 8 p.m. Central Time. I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor right now. The sponsor of America Can We Talk is GC Works, which is a Dallas-based company that performs research in advanced technology and delivers innovative approaches to the oil and gas industry. Could not do the show without them. And again, happy Labor Day weekend. You know, Labor Day, other years, I'm a labor lawyer by background, so I used to think a lot about labor law and unions and employers and rights and all that, but I'm not going to go off on that today. I am going to say the holiday Labor Day got started in America as a support of and by, at the impetus of left-wing socialist union organizers. That was the, the impetus of it. But today, in 2018, the best news is that all of the economic data out there, including not just numbers, which I will share, but attitudes of people, is what we are learning in America is astonishingly that freedom works. That that having a robust free market driven economy with businesses employing and growing makes everything 
better for everyone. Let me start with just blue-collar optimism. You hear many uh, people who say, well, I don't like a lot of the radical part of the, of the uh, American left, but, you know, I've always voted for the little guy. I think the Democrats look out for the little guy. Well, you know what? You don't get to claim that if your policies don't actually help the little guy. And if all your policies are that help the little guy are just government assistance programs, that doesn't count as really lifting them up. Let me tell you first about blue-collar optimism. There was a Harris poll that found in America that 85%, 85% of blue-collar workers say their lives are headed in the right direction. The high optimism level has a lot to do with the economy, economic numbers. The economy is surging, shows no signs of slowing down. I'm going to hit some more numbers in a minute. But just to tell you, on Wednesday, the Commerce Department raised its estimate for the second quarter GDP growth to 4.2%, which means annual growth for the first half of the year above 3%. Median household income is now up more than 4%. Inflation-adjusted medium household incomes in July hit $62,000, according to the latest blah, blah, that's highest uh, since, they, since they ever started tracking. This particular entity started tracking more than 18 years ago. Median household income has shot up more than 4% in the 19 months since President Trump has been president. And the reason I'm telling you this is, there are, and especially women, I'm talking to everybody, but women, I want to say, a lot of women will say, well, I, I, like, I like free markets and I really, I'm kind of conservative, but you know, I really want to make sure we help the little guy. And I like the focus on helping people rather than helping businesses. So they think that they're kind of more liberal because they want to help people. But I'm telling you folks, helping businesses helps people. This is the outcome of this just endless great news that's coming out from, the, uh, in, from all sorts of sources. But just as a really pragmatic sit-down example, if your ability to pay your rent, to put food on the table, to take care of your children comes from reliance on the government and, and dependency on the government, and you don't have any sense that you're capable of supporting your family you're not as happy and fulfilled a person as someone who is discovering I can be self-reliant. And that in this growing economy, people getting jobs, jobs coming back into America, had wandered overseas for all the reasons we know, jobs coming back, people finding out they can actually, they can take care of their families. And the extra money to the families, you know, the left wants to gripe about the tax cuts, only help businesses. It helps people. Businesses are people. If you have a job now or you have an increase in your income because of the good economy, it's a difference between sitting home all summer long and playing in the backyard and saying, you know, kids, we maybe could afford a little vacation this summer. We might be able to go to the lake for a week and, and you know, swim in the lake. We might get to go visit grandma in Iowa. And on top of that, when you have the, oh, by the way, consumer confidence just soaring, consumer confidence, the trust and ability in being able to, uh, to spend money because you're not worried you're going to be broke tomorrow. That's what consumer confidence in plain English is, confidence to spend your money, to invest your money. So it makes a difference whether you're sitting at the end of the summer, school year starting, and you're thinking, I really cannot afford to buy little Tommy new soccer shoes for the new soccer season. He's just going to have to cram into the ones that are too small. I just can't afford to get my daughter or son some different clothing for school or something they need. The difference is real humans 
having more abundance, more comfort. That's what good economic numbers are. And it's so tiresome when you have to listen to some of the leftists railing about how, you know, it's so, it's so just worried about big business and money and evil and greed. Businesses succeeding in hiring people and giving them jobs and increasing their salaries and increasing their benefits, it's about human happiness. Okay, so a few more numbers. And the reason I'm so happy about this is because all of this economic good news is a result of President Trump's economic policies. In fact, there are many, many contrasts to make uh, with President Obama's eight years, you know, and he's, you know, this is, I, I mean, I'm not saying he didn't want people to be well off, but the simple fact is bad policies bring bad results. Bad economic ideas make people poor. Good economic ideas help people. So a little bit of a contrast here. The, um, over the course of President Obama's eight years in office, median household income climbed only 0.3%. Yeah, in the whole eight years. Okay, and a couple of things. You know, there are a lot of numbers here, but I do want to share a few more because I just think when your friends tell you, well, you know, I know the economy is good, but does that really matter? I mean, you have to look at the whole picture. What about, you know, the little guy? The answer is the little guy is doing great in this economy because the economy is about money and people. I'm going to just tell you something else. Of the blue-collar workers, these little guys, 51% of blue-collar workers believe the country as a whole is headed in the right direction. 51% of blue-collar workers headed in the right direction. 80% said they're very optimistic about the future. 88%, huge measure I'm about to tell you, 88% believe their children would likely attain a better future than they will have. This is a measure since time began. It was a measure the American left tried to use to attack President Reagan and other conservative pol policymakers and policies that people don't think their children have a better future. Well, they do now because they can see optimism on the horizon. So a few other great numbers to share with you. Uh, just be, The jobless numbers down to 3.9%. Um, and in July of 2008, the national unemployment rate was 5.8. This is going to contrasting with President Obama's numbers. July of 2008, national unemployment rate 5.8%. As of July 2012, seven months, okay, into his second term, the rate was 8.2. So unemployment went up under President Obama. People didn't have jobs. This year, under 19 months or so, whatever it is, of President Trump, we are at the 3.9 number. Economic growth is doing fabulous. Consumer confidence through the roof. And so I say all these numbers to say that there's just optimism in recognizing, and, and forget about labels, forget Republican versus Democrat, conservative, liberal. There is a truth in economic theory. It's not just, you know, fanciful theories and people debating. There is truth in the idea that good economic policy, low taxes, reducing regulation, bringing jobs home, inspiring businesses to build, it makes life better for everyone. Great to know. Last thing I want to tell you, unique that President Trump um, did uh, recently, which um, some people on the left don't like. I think it's a really good thing. But last thing in the economy on this Labor Day weekend, when we're celebrating the virtues and joy of actually working and, and feeling like you're earning your way in life, President Trump announced just recently, like three days ago, I think, that there's going to be a pay freeze of the federal employees, or put the other way, normally if you're a federal government employee, you just get a raise every year. You know how kind of like everybody in private sector, oh wait, 
No, no, they don't. Private sector, you don't get that. But in the federal government employment, over 2 million civilians employed getting uh, get a raise automatically every year. President Trump announced, no, we're not doing that. Number one, there's too much spending in the federal government. He's right about that. Uh, number two, he said, we need to return to the idea of merit, getting raises based on merit. Imagine the thought. And then number three, he's talking about how we have the, the federal government employees have the, um, have the um, 19, not, not 19, 18, 17% contrasting the private sector employee with a public sector employee in the same job. You get paid 17% more as a federal government employee than you do in the private sector. Now, that's mostly... Mostly, it is about benefits, but still, it's huge. Okay, we're going to have a break up very shortly, and I want to let you know that I have a guest joining me in the next segment. This is a guest. If you're watching Facebook Live, and if you are, by the way, come back after the four-minute break. If you're watching Facebook Live, the author of this book I'm holding up, and I will just tell you, it's called The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. The author is Robert Spencer, and the reason I'm excited, this book is like an encyclopedic history of all of the efforts of jihadists through the centuries. You'll love hearing from him. Come back and form us on Facebook Live. Debbie George asks, America Can We Talk? Come right back. America is greatly blessed by the men and women serving in our military who are defending us every day making our freedom possible. Military families also serve, and they face hardships while dads and moms are far from home. Military families endure frequent moves around the country and overseas, requiring them to adjust to new schools and make new friends over and over. They also face anguish while their soldiers deployed overseas, often in harm's way. The Army Scholarship Foundation offers one way to help military families by providing academic scholarships to children and spouses of soldiers. And you can help. Visit ArmyScholarshipFoundation.org and consider making a tax-deductible donation to help a military family member pursue his or her educational dreams. Assisting military family members with their college education is a great way for all of us at home to say thank you to our military families for your service and sacrifice. Visit ArmyScholarshipFoundation.org and get involved today. The right to freedom of speech, to be who you are and to speak your mind, is a foundational American value enshrined in the First Amendment to our Constitution. And nowhere is that value more important than on America's college campuses. But too often on our campuses, unpopular political opinions or religious beliefs are met with censorship or even violence instead of honest dialogue and discussion. And Texas colleges are no exception. Schools like the University of Texas at Austin, Sam Houston State University, and the University of North Texas all place burdensome restrictions on free speech. That's why the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, FIRE, fights back against the censors to defend liberty on America's college campuses. Does your college or alma mater uphold our most cherished American value of freedom of speech? Find out by visiting thefire.org and consider lending FIRE your support. Have you heard of the Policy Circle? It's a national network of women who come together in neighborhood conversations to discuss the public policies impacting their communities. You can think of it as a book club, but instead of reviewing a book, members discuss public policy issues. Policy Circle members have access to membership-only resources and benefits that complement a thoughtful framework 
network for women to come together and have fact-based discussions. From healthcare to poverty, from free enterprise to education, from fiscal responsibility to the First Amendment, we discuss the issues that shape America. Change starts with a conversation. Conversations happen when women across the nation are connected and engaged in their communities, openly sharing their views and taking a leadership role in policy dialogue on what human creativity can accomplish in a free economy. Are you ready to join a growing network of engaged women? To join or start your own policy circle, visit thepolicycircle.org today. That's thepolicycircle.org. The federal government spends $900 billion annually on anti-poverty programs. What has it produced? 75% of black children are born into fatherless homes. 43% of the prison population is black. The black poverty rate has remained at twice the national average. And cities like Oakland, Baltimore, St. Louis, and Detroit are in ruins. Instead of helping, bad policies and billions of dollars have spread a sickness in the black community. It's time for a cure. The Center for Urban Renewal and Education, CURE, led by President Star Parker, is addressing our nation's most critical problems in our nation's most distressed zip codes. CURE's mission is to fight poverty and restore dignity through faith, freedom, and personal responsibility. To find out more, to read about how CURE works, and how you can help, please visit urbancure.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Together, you and I can cure America. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. And again, so thanks so very much for tuning in to my show, America Can We Talk. As I mentioned before the break, um, we have a guest joining us this hour. I believe we have him online. <laughs> you know what? A little trouble with our guest last week. Uh, we got him. Okay. And uh, I was just notified by one of our listeners that when I'm holding the, his book up for you to see on Facebook Live, uh, it's backwards. Sorry about that. The book is called The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS stellar, stellar book. And I believe we have Mr. Robert Spencer online. Hello, sir. Hi, Debbie. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Just great. Thank you. Okay. I must tell you that uh, I don't know if you know this feeling, like when you go to a museum and it's the most informative, amazing museum ever, and you and I've done this, I have this feeling in art museums and history museums, I wish I could memorize every detail so that when I walk out the door, I uh, can remember it all. And that's exactly the feeling I had looking through, and I, I, I didn't memorize your book, but looking through your book, The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS, it is so fact-packed of just recounting the history of jihad and, and just in, in the words in many cases of people who recounted in their journals of what happened. So if, to start with, congratulations on the book. And then second, why did you write it? Uh, thank you very much. I much appreciate your uh, your kind assessment. And I wrote it because it didn't exist. Uh, you remember the guy who wrote The Catcher in the Rye, J.D. Salinger. Uh, whatever you think about The Catcher in the Rye, I always remembered something that I read that he had said once, and that was all the books he had written were books that he wanted to read, but they didn't exist. And so it was up to him to write them. And so this is actually the case of uh, why I wrote this book. There is no other history of jihad. There are histories of jihad against Europe. Those are not so hard to find. But uh, history of jihad that encompasses India, encompasses all of the rest of the world, this is something that has never been done before, and this is the only book that does it. 
It, it is uh, truly, listeners, it is just a stellar book. And you can, it's organized very logically by time over the centuries. And one thing I uh, didn't know what you were going to say about why you wrote it, and I'm, I'm thrilled that you did. It is should be a textbook for students to read. But one thing that occurred to me that ever since 9-11 happened and in America and a lot of people uh, really didn't have any familiarity with Islam, didn't recognize or know anything about jihad, and a lot of what people thought was that whatever happened on 9-11 probably happened because we, America, did something wrong. This was retaliation for something bad we did because they had no concept of the long historical uh, conquest ideology of Islam. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. one of our... It's one of our biggest weaknesses, actually, as a nation, is that we don't have a historical sense. And people don't know. Uh, people tell me all the time, you know, when I was growing up, and this is certainly true of me also, I didn't, we didn't have this kind of thing with people blowing themselves up and, and stabbings and people running people over and so on. Uh, these kinds of things didn't happen. We never heard about Islamic terrorism in the 70s and the 80s, and this is true. Uh, but one thing that I show in the book is that there was... A, certainly a spell in which it was not happening because the Islamic countries were weak and not able to pursue it. It wasn't because there was a reformation, a rejection, a reconsideration of the doctrines that gave rise to it. Those have always existed, and as I show in the book, for 14 centuries, Muslims have acted upon them. And so what we saw starting in the latter part of the 20th century, and very much in the 21st with 9-11 and everything else, is a resurgence of a 1,400-year war that has been going, been pursued all over the world, wherever Muslims and non-Muslims have lived together. It's just, yeah, it, exactly. And, you know, I wasn't very familiar. In fact, I even took, a um, not a minor, but a lot of classes in comparative religion in college, and I never had anyone say that there was any, I mean, Islam was presented kind of like one of the great world religions and X percent of the world, and, you know, there was no sense, even in your trying to be in-depth in college studying religions, that there was woven into the founding of it or by the founder of it uh, this notion that conquest in the name of converting people to Islam is permissible. I think most people still don't know that. Right. Absolutely. Well, there's certainly been a deliberate campaign of disinformation and misinformation that has kept many people from knowing it. Uh, the last chapter of the book is called The West Loses the Will to Live, and it starts with 9-11 and then goes immediately to George W. Bush in the mosque six days after 9-11. He went to a mosque in Washington. He was standing in front of Abdurrahman Alamudi who was later imprisoned for being a financier of al-Qaeda, and he said Islam is a religion of peace. And so this is an extraordinary situation. You have the President of the United States, right after a major jihad attack, going to the place, going to a place to say that the motivating ideology behind the attack is not really what it was, and standing there with somebody who helped finance the group that pulled off the attack. It's an astonishing story, really. It's an astonishing story. I, I had a line I was going to say to you about the name of your uh, chapter 10. It is, The West Loses the Will to Live. I was going to say that's the only chapter I disagree with your title because <laughs> I know that we seem to have lost the will to live and that we have many actors who are failing to recognize the threat. But through the work that you do and Frank Gaffney and Center for Security Policy and others, I think, I, I think there's a resurgence of the will to live. I think more people are waking up. But m maybe you feel differently. Do you think America is waking up to the threat more and more? 
Yeah, actually, it's true. I still title, of course, I wrote the book uh, late last year and early this year, and I did title it that now. But I'm actually much more optimistic than I was in, say, 2015. Uh, certainly the election of the president and the Brexit vote, many, many uh, good developments in Europe are showing that people are waking up. But it's still also unfortunately true that the political and media elites in both Europe and the United States are dead set against basic measures that we need to take to survive. Absolutely. And I mentioned the last segment, I was talking about a different topic, but I mentioned that that Brad Anderson, executive, the former, the, he was a former CEO of Best Buy, who made simply made a donation to a group that put commercials out that people th- viewed as Islamophobic. My point being, the, uh, the militancy of some in- defenders of Islam in America is, is truly strident and, and kind of shocking. I mean, they drove Brad Anderson off of three or four, are you familiar with that at all, drove him off of three or four boards? Yeah, doesn't yeah, surprise yeah. me at all. Just today, uh, on my website, Jihad Watch, I have news about a group called Ex-Muslims of North America. Uh, the Islamic Society of North America, which is a group that ties to Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood, is having its annual convention right now in Houston, Texas. And so this group, the Ex-Muslims of North America, went to Houston to the hotel across the street from the conference with wearing T-shirts saying, I'm an ex-Muslim, ask me why. They were sitting in the Starbucks at the Hilton across the street from the conference, peacefully drinking coffee and chatting with each other, and they were ordered off the premises and told that they could not be there unless they changed their shirts. This is America in 2018, and that's why I called it The West Loses the Will to Live. Yeah. The story you just recounted, this is up on your website? Is that right? Yes, it is. Jihadwatch.org. I was going to say, you founded Jihad Watch. I love that. It's a great site for listeners to go to and read some of the stories about the threat of jihad because you know, this, this idea that he's describing, you, I mean, it's not just that individuals assert that Islam cannot be insulted, but they co-opt people like whoever ran the coffee shop across the street. It, it's, like, it's like some people in authority take the side of those trying to protect Islam as a, as a victim class and really apply yeah. standards they wouldn't apply to other people. Yeah, absolutely. And this is what uh, the Islamic advocacy groups and their leftist allies have very skillfully done since 9-11, and actually starting before then, is portray Muslims as a victim class, subject to persecution, harassment, and discrimination in the United States, which is not really the case. The FBI now you, uh, knows, yeah, hate go ahead. crimes against uh, other groups are far more common than hate crimes against Muslims. No hate crimes against anybody is justified. But the idea that Muslims are under some kind of threat in the United States, that's, uh, that's an appalling falsehood that is politically motivated, manipulative, and designed to interfere with counterterror efforts. And it silences criticism. Speaking of that, we only have about a minute left in this segment, but I mentioned in an email ahead of time, if you've been following this story that uh, in England, a member of parliament, Boris Johnson, put out a blog post essentially saying, related to some of the countries in Europe are passing bans on burqas. And he was, his thing said, look, you know, I don't think you should ban them because it's up to the individual they want to do. But he made some, uh, what they felt was insulting references to the way women look with those, uh, with a covering on everything but their eyes. um, And he's now being investigated and there's a complaint filed with Theresa May saying essentially he should be told he has to stop talking. Have you followed that at all? Yeah, um, the uh, Conservative Party, so-called, of Britain actually has threatened to send him to re-education camp to uh, <laughs> that uh, sensitivity training, they call it. And uh, I think Boris, however, is very canny. 
because there's tremendous frustration and anger in Britain today. There is nobody who is speaking out for the people, the many, many ordinary British citizens who are deeply concerned about what's going on in the country and about the consequences of mass Muslim migration into Britain. And so uh, Boris, by saying this and refusing to back down, actually is, for the first time, giving these people a representative. And he absolutely so is. You know, I got to jump in. We're going to be out of time in this segment. I'm so okay. sorry. Robert Spencer, love your book, The History of Jihad. Thank you so much for calling in. And thank you so much. I'm sorry we got to cut you. it short. Thank you, sir. Be right back. If you want to get at the issues that really matter for women and men, go to IWF.org. That's the Independent Women's Forum. IWF is all about increasing the number of American women who value free markets and personal liberty. IWF's motto is all issues are women's issues. They bring a fact-based approach to politics, policy, and culture. When the left tried to peddle a phony war on women, IWF shot back with facts and figures. American women aren't victims in need of ever-increasing government protection. And IWF doesn't think things are perfect, but they believe that individual liberty is the key to prosperity and fulfillment. Along with their sister organization, Independent Women's Voice, IWVoice.org, which is a leader in the fight against Obamacare, they offer policy papers, op-eds, and a popular blog on issues of the day. So visit IWF at IWF.org. That's IWF.org. Let me tell you about the group Vice President Mike Pence called the most effective grassroots pro-life organization in America. It's the Susan B. Anthony List, and they're the ones who are on Capitol Hill right now, day in, day out, to fight back against Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry. Every day in our nation, abortion takes more than 2,000 innocent lives, almost two every single minute of every single day. And Planned Parenthood is the largest abortion business in the country, committing one-third of all abortions. It's an unspeakable tragedy and a stain upon our nation and our humanity. And it's up to us to do something about it. This is your opportunity to join the team that's leading the charge to end abortion. Go to sba-list.org or Google Susan B. Anthony List now to learn more and start saving lives today. America is greatly blessed by the men and women serving in our military who are defending us every day, making our freedom possible. Military families also serve, and they face hardships while dads and moms are far from home. Military families endure frequent moves around the country and overseas, requiring them to adjust to new schools and make new friends over and over. They also face anguish while their soldiers deployed overseas, often in harm's way. The Army Scholarship Foundation offers one way to help military families by providing academic scholarships to children and spouses of soldiers. And you can help. Visit ArmyScholarshipFoundation.org and consider making a tax-deductible donation to help a military family member pursue his or her educational dreams. Assisting military family members with their college education is a great way for all of us at home to say thank you to our military families for your service and sacrifice. Visit ArmyScholarshipFoundation.org and get involved today. 
Our nation faces a choice. The path of big government based out of Washington or the unique brand of liberty and prosperity enjoyed here in Texas. For 27 years, the Texas Public Policy Foundation has helped leaders in the Lone Star State prove that fiscal restraint and small government can deliver opportunity and prosperity for all. The Texas Public Policy Foundation promotes and defends solutions here and around the country based on liberty, free enterprise, and personal responsibility. Whether informing the national debate on property rights, energy, taxes, education, or criminal justice, the foundation works to translate ideas into real change. The Texas Public Policy Foundation does not accept government funds or contributions to influence the outcome of its research. It is supported by thousands of people like you who are concerned about the future of our country. You can help Texas remain strong as the beacon of liberty in America. Visit TexasPolicy.com to learn more. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. You know, I am always so sorry when I have to cut short a great interview. I just, I didn't, I had not asked him if he could stay on another segment. And um, so uh, we had a little break and I had to go to it. But I want to again urge you, the book is called The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. It's by Robert Spencer. It's the kind of book you can read and keep like an encyclopedia in your library. And the part of the reason I think it's so important is in America, as we face the threat of radical Islam, we face the threat of jihad. We face cultural jihad and civilization jihad and, and violent jihad. All of that, so many people think... Sorry, just something there. Uh, some people think that somehow this is all occurring uh, as a response to bad things America did. And this is part of why it's so important to understand that not all Muslims, but in the writings, the founding writings of Islam, the Quran, the other, uh, many other holy scriptures, I'm not gonna, I've actually been writing about them recently, but I'm not going to go into those. But the point is, from the time of the founding of the faith, the idea of jihad, forcing others to kill, to people who were following Muhammad's lead, forcing others to say you either convert or you get killed. It, this, this aggression, this conquest ideology is woven into the mindset of Islam. It does not mean every Muslim does this. It means that is what is woven into the, in, into the ideology. And throughout the time of Muhammad up until now, there have been the, the, unbelievable conquest on behalf of Islam all over the world. His book traces things that I did not know about. For example, the and he alluded to it, the great pressure that is that uh, jihadists made in the country of India. They did not consider the Indians, who were Hindu, to have a permissible religion. I mean, we're talking mass slaughter and conquering and just horrific behavior. This has gone on through the centuries, and his book isn't just a history book, Summarizing history, it has many quotes from the people who were involved in those conquests or who observed those conquests, who were the, re, the recipients of the evil of those conquests. And so he talks about just, I mean, he lays out the history. I think part of the reason it's so important to understand is that we in America, his last chapter um, alludes to this idea that we have been, because we've been ignorant, we have not been ready for, we haven't been able to prop, properly process or assess 
What is the reason we're being attacked? What are the forms of attack that Islam is engaging in against America? And if we don't see it, we can't conquer it. We can't fight back. We can't defend our culture of liberty. So his book is truly belongs on your library shelf. Uh, it is one that's just full of information, especially someone who says, well, you know, maybe the Muslims are, Muslims are doing this, but look at the, look at the, it was horrible. Look at the, the um, crusades. They were terrible. Okay. The crusades, as he recounts in this book in great detail, were the Christian nations pushing back the Islamic conquerors, pushing the Islamic conquerors back out of Europe, back out of Spain. It was not initiated by Christians trying to trying to uh, engage in a conquest against Islam. It was the Christians were saying, you know what, we don't we don't want to live under Islam and, and we don't like that you conquered us and we're going to fight back. So can't urge enough to read that book, have it handy. Be ready to talk, just, you know, it's just a, important, vital information to know. And honestly, I wish all of our State Department officials and everyone in President Trump's staff had to read it. Because you would, you would just, you take a different approach in recognizing um, not just the violent jihad, which is bad enough, but the cultural jihad, the willingness of people who are pushing this conquest ideology to use a variety of tactics to overcome countries, including, as he was describing just now, uh, people who were, um, you know, wearing um, T-shirts that said, um, I'm a former Muslim, ask me why, in a coffee shop in Houston, across the street from some, you know, Islamic gathering, and they were told they had to leave or change their shirts. I mean, why would anyone, you know, why would this coffee shop owner decide that you can't have a shirt that insults Islam. People wear all, all sorts of insulting shirts. I see shirts all the time I don't like. I don't see most people being told you can't wear that shirt. But this is what part of what he's describing. It's just, it's just really important to understand. Okay, so love the book, Robert Spencer. You ought to get it. I ordered it even here on vacation, and I've been skimming through it. Okay, so I want to turn to a subject. You know, people are... Um, you know, watching that we have the 2018 midterms coming up. We have people, you know, some people don't like President Trump real well. They have, we have a lot of the, you know, we have the never Trumpers. We have the American left has worked up into a tizzy. And I think a lot of people still go, what is it that the Trump supporters, why do they like Trump so much? And a lot of what happens, as we were talking about earlier, concerning the boycott of In-N-Out that backfired like big time. But part of what happens is that people that the uh, American left labels Trump with all these things, these labels that are not true. And then the people who support him or like him or won't denounce him are painted with the same brush too. And, and people are just kind of tired of it. Well, I'm going to give you another example of why people are so excited about Donald Trump and why they're just so grateful. A man with his refreshing views, his willingness to bring kind of business-like thinking into the, uh, into the White House, into the political arena. He recently announced two things. We talked about one, I think, maybe on my Wednesday podcast, I don't know if I talked about it in the show last Sunday, but anyway, you know, it talked about we, we talked about how uh, President Trump had cut off funding to this Palestinian group, um, cut off America's tax dollar funding to this Palestinian group. So two things happened this week that are related to that. The basic message I want to say is this is President Trump deciding that 
we're not going to play the State Department dance. We're not going to do the State Department dance. We're not going to do the U.N. process and procedure. We're not going to play the international political game and have a long discussion and dialogue and debate. We're going to do what's right, especially with America's tax dollars. So first thing I want to mention is that the America, United States, announced their immediate end to the funding of, and it's UNRWA, UNRWA. I don't know how you're supposed to, what the, how you should pronounce it. UNRWA, United Nations Relief and Works Agency. This agency, President Trump, in the announcement, talked about questioning the organization's fundamental business model of servicing an endlessly and exponentially expanding community of declared Palestinian refugees. What they do, they tout themselves as the group that America gives money to to help the Palestinian refugees. If you listen to my show very often, you know there's no such thing actually as a national ethnic identity as Palestinian. It's a concocted identity. Putting that aside, we'll talk about that again some other time, but putting that aside, what this group has done under the, you know, under the auspices of the UN is add people, add and add and add people to the group they are characterizing as Palestinian refugees, including now they have, they have added people who are the descendants of refugees from the 1940s mandate, the Palestine mandate, which did not, has nothing to do with Palestinian people. But anyway, the point is this is a group that just comes up with its own numbers. It says that they have the numbers that they claim to have that they were having to fund and help through the UNRWA was something in the range of 5.3 million Palestinian refugees. 5.3 million. So the State Department started doing its own study under President Trump, under his State Department, and realized they're just exponentially throwing people in here. They're not victims of anything, but they're adding and adding and adding to this group that the real number, the more likely number of people who could meet the definition of the UN refugee, uh, of the Palestinian refugee, is more like, instead of 5.3 million, about 20,000. So President Trump said, you know, we're not funding this group anymore. The specifics he talked about was they have to straighten out how they calculate what their numbers are. They have to stop fibbing about the numbers. Number two, Nikki Haley, our U.S. ambassador to the U.N., gave a speech in Washington where she talked about part of the pressure is being put in the Palestinians to take the garbage out of their textbooks. Garbage is my word, not hers. Garbage out of these Palestinian textbooks. And we've talked about this in the show before. You have Palestinian schools in which children are taught from the youngest age that Jews uh, kill other people's babies and eat them, that Jews kill the babies of Palestinians and drink their blood. That, I mean, they, they just, they're filled from teaching math to history to every subject with hatred of Israel and hatred of Jewish people. Our money, when we send money, America's money, to the UNRWA, and we are funding that kind of education. This is Trump. This is why people, you want the answer why they, people like him and, and care, are so excited? 
because he's not going to play the game that's gone on for decades, gone on, frankly, under President Obama and Bush and the previous Bush and Clinton. All we do is keep writing checks, writing checks, writing checks as they are running schools, teaching children to kill Jewish people. And we keep sending money, although I know it's under the, the auspices of aid and help. Obviously, these people use that money to target America's ally, Israel. On top of that is just another astonishing, it's like bank robbery. I don't even know what term to use for it. America keeps sending money because we have committed through the UN to do this. We send money to this group that is sponsoring terror, that is a terrorist group, that doesn't take care of its own people. The place is a mess over there, both in the West Bank and Gaza. The place is a mess. The Palestinian Authority is continuing to engage in this kind of conduct. And finally, America said, you know what? No. No, we're not sending money. The other thing, and this is one of my uh, enjoyable things to share uh, related to the midterms, is the Palestinian leaders, the leaders of the Palestinian Authority came out with a statement. The guy's name is Muhammad Shataya. He's a member of the Fatah government's central committee. Fatah is the largest faction of the PLO. Okay, so this, he's basically a PLO guy. He came out with a statement saying that they, 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 the Palestinian terrorists, are rooting for the Democrats in this midterm election cycle. They're rooting to have the Democrats take over the House so they can stop Trump's agenda because they don't like that Trump is cutting off money to their terror organization. They don't like that Trump is pointing out the fraudulent basis of their entire use of U.N. money. These people are rooting for the Democrats. So this is we you should start like a hashtag. Uh, terrorists love Democrats. Terrorists root for. I mean, seriously, it is a great it's great news for conservatives because what it's showing is Trump is effective. This makes the left crazy. I'm Debbie Georges. This is America Community Talk. Community. Facebook Live, come back in four minutes. And otherwise, top of the, top of the hour, come right back for the cruise through the news in the second hour. <laughs> 